Alrighty, church, if you haven't already done so, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to be taking a look at the entire, entire chapter. A little more emphasis on the front end of it than the back end. Before we open and speak to God's word, I'd like to pray for our time in it. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that is in it. Thank you for the fact that it can change hearts, it can change lives, it can change eternities. And so, Lord, I pray today we would be people who have a desire to hear from you, that we realize that every time we open your word, you have, you're speaking to us. And Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that desires uh, to know you and love you more and to pursue whatever it is that the word has for us today. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we have seen Paul addressing an issue of division within the Corinthian church. Now, the people of the Corinthian church, they've started aligning themselves into different <coughs> groups or different factions uh, based on what teacher they like more. And um, in that division, they're elevating themselves up against the other people because they think that their teacher is superior in some way. Uh, so from their perspective, because the teacher that I prefer is better, in my opinion, than the teacher that you prefer, then that obviously means that I'm better than you in some way. I don't know how that logic comes to be, but this is what they're doing. And Paul is absolutely dumbfounded that the church would divide over something like this. Right? The Christian church is supposed to be unified around the gospel. We're not supposed to allow things like, I like this teacher better than the teacher that you like, and so therefore we're going to go in separate directions. Right? The Christian church is all about people from every walk of life coming together based on the idea that they were brought from death to life. Right? These miraculous changes in who we are as people are what bring us together. Right? The grace of God that was poured out on us through our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what brings us together. It's what unifies us. Not our preference in teacher, not our preference in churches or, or worship style. Right? The cross is the ultimate nullifier of any reason to boast. No matter what you and I have in our lives to be proud of, whether it's I like this person on this podcast and you like that person, so I'm better than you. It's our, if it's our intelligence, if it's our beauty, if it's our athletic prowess, if it's our ability to make money, to make uh, things with our hands, our ability to sing, our ability to act. It doesn't matter what your thing is. I just tried to do a shotgun blast of all these attributes that people have. It doesn't matter what your thing is. The cross says that our rebellion against God was so significant and so severe that it required an atoning sacrifice of Christ to enable us to return to relationship with our creator you have no room to boast about anything and on top of that Paul's going to point out in our passage this morning that no matter what you may have whatever your thing is in that list or in the broader list of things that I couldn't mention all of that was given to you by God you didn't do anything for it 
Right? You didn't knock on the door of the womb and say, hey, if you could just throw in some skills here, that would be appreciated. If you could make me 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and able to palm a basketball, I would greatly appreciate that. We did nothing for the gifts that God has given us. And so there's no need to brag about anything in the Christian faith other than Jesus. And beyond that, there's nothing else that we can boast in. We're supposed to be known for our love for each other. How often does the church get pointed out for how we divide, for all the things that we're against and all the things that we don't like? And yet we're supposed to be known for our love for each other. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And so how do you hear this and be taught this and then think, you know what would be really loving for my brothers and sisters in Christ is if I ostracize them because they like a different teacher in the the word than I do. I mean, there is a major disconnect here. It's unloving and it's ungodly to elevate ourselves above our brothers and sisters in Christ for any reason, for any reason at all. And these folks are doing it because they prefer someone else's teaching style or their personality over another. And Paul says that they're living like the world. You're living in the world's wisdom. The world divides this way, not the church. He said in chapter 3 that all of these issues are stemming from spiritual immaturity. He said you were young in the faith when I, when I was there planting, you couldn't handle anything other than spiritual milk, and yet you are still on spiritual milk. We're talking three or four years later. He says, you should be eating meat by now, but yet you are still stuck on spiritual milk, and it's coming all from a lack of understanding and growth in the Christian faith. They don't understand the nature of those who God has called out to lead and guide the church. You should not divide over leaders in the church. Over the last two weeks, we've seen Paul use two different analogies to try to help these immature believers in Corinth understand his role and the role of the other teachers that have played into the church's development in their faith. One was an agricultural analogy where he said that he planted the seed of the gospel, Apollos watered it, but neither one of them made it grow. It was God that made them grow. God grew the seed of faith in them. Yes, it's important that Paul planted the seed. Someone has to plant the seed. It's important that Apollos watered the seed. Someone needs to water the seed. But those uh, those people didn't make it grow. God made it grow. And so we're not team Paul or team Apollos or team Peter or team Cephas or or Jesus in that regard where they're elevating themselves over others. We are team God. We focus on Christ and not so that we can lord that over everyone else the way they were using it. The other analogy that Paul used last week was uh, an architectural analogy. He's talking about building on a foundation and the foundation of their faith that he laid was Christ. That's the only foundation that stands. Right? There's no other hope for salvation. There's no other place that we can put our faith 
And so Paul laid that foundation, and Paul continues by saying that there are others who will come who will build on that foundation. And none of those people are to be elevated by over another one by us. That's not our role. Paul said that God Himself would judge the work of all these planters and all these waterers and all these builders. God's going to judge that. Not us. There's going to be a reward for everyone who has put forth effort in advancing God's kingdom, but the people themselves are servants. He continues with this idea in chapter 4. We're going to see that as he informs the church further on how they should think about those who are teaching them the things of God. And this is, he's wrapping this up. Now we're going to next, well, no, we're going into Advent. So it'll be after the Christmas season. We will take this back up, but we're going to see that he's going to change gears. We're going to change directions after this. He's wrapping up this introduction with the division in the church. But here in chapter 4, he's going to say, verses 1 and 2, a person, a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and as managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. And so here, Paul provides the Corinthian church with two ways about thinking about the apostles and the other teachers of the gospel that are going to work with the Corinthian church. He points to two positions in their culture which they would have been familiar with. The position of a servant and the position of a manager. And in using these two positions, Paul's trying to convey a balance of authority and service. So there's supposed to be submission in the church, in the church leaders, but there's also a sense of authority that they bring to it as well. A servant is someone who does whatever is asked of them to the best of their ability. Right? When someone would be a servant in someone's house, they were the ones that washed people's feet. They were the ones that cooked people's food. They were the ones who would do whatever was necessary as, as the master of the house called them to do what they wanted them to do. Right? A servant in the context of the church leaders are obviously going to be constrained. Like, I can't do anything that would be outside the bounds of the gospel. But I'm supposed to be someone who serves you. I'm supposed to be someone who pours out my life for you as much as I can given the other circumstances of my life. But I'm, I'm here for you. And I'm here to serve you. I'm here. I, I ask you people all the time, is there anything I can do for you? And almost none of you ever take me up on that. I don't know if I should thank you or, or fuss. I don't know. I don't know. But Paul's saying that, that church leaders are meant to be servants of the people that God has given them. You are my people. God has given us to one another so that I can serve you and so that you can serve me as well. But we're not to be elevated, right? The only reason why the, this has stood higher than everyone else is so everyone can see the word of God being preached. That's it. I am not over you in any way, shape, or form as far as the love of God on my life. There is some expectation that's a little higher for those who are uh, leaders, leaders in church. But otherwise, I'm a servant. I'm here to serve you. A manager, on the other hand, though, is someone who does have authority. It's authority that's placed on them by the owner of something who wants that thing looked after. Right? The manager is not the owner. 
but the manager is given authority that is bestowed upon them by the owner. Right? It's in the owner's absence, the manager is the person who's going to be in charge. Right? That person is going to uh, call the shots in order to maintain or improve whatever has been left in their care. And when the owner returns, the owner expects to find that the manager has been hard at work on their behalf. Now we see many parables in the New Testament of managers who have either they've been given talents, right, money to invest on the owner's behalf. And when he comes back, he expects to see an investment in that. He expects to see return in that. And the two managers that produced a return were praised. And the one manager that didn't produce a return was cast into the outer darkness. There's an expectation that managers are going to do what has been, they've been called to do. Right? Things better be better or at least the same as they were when the owner leaves. That's the manager's job in this case. And Paul says that pastors, elders, and overseers that work with the church, they need to be a combination of both. Right? There is an inherent sense of authority that I have called to lead this church. But, there is, but I, I shouldn't elevate myself above you because of that authority. I am a servant leader. I try to lead you towards the things of God. I try to build up the kingdom of God. I try to push back the darkness through the way that I lead this church. But I do that in an effort to submit to God and to you as needed. That's what Paul is saying. Saying anybody that sits in this spot is meant to be a servant and a manager. And they need to be willing to lead the church faithfully. In verse 2, Paul says that's what's required of managers. Faithfulness. They need to be found faithful. But what we don't see here in verse 2 is an explanation by Paul of what it means to be faithful. Faithful to what? Right? And who gets to decide if the servant manager has been faithful? Well, generally, when the Bible uses the term faithful, there's this expectation that whatever is being faithful is going to be reliable, steadfast, and unwavering. Right? This is an attribute of God that He shares with His people. There's an expectation that those who He has called to manage His church, they're going to reflect that, that attribute towards the church. To be faithful in this sense means that managers are unwavering on the gospel. And we're going to hold this steadfast and tight. This will not change. The gospel is the gospel. And it does not matter if it is the first century A.D. or 2020 million. We're holding fast to the gospel. We will, un we will be unwavering in that. We're unwavering on the law of God. God has spoken. It is clear what He desires. It is clear what He wants from us. And we're not going to start budging on that because culture says that's outdated. Managers are to be steadfast in their proclamation of the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As I said before, there's no hope in anything else. If I get up here and I start preaching something other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I need to be let go immediately because there's no hope in anything else. Managers are to be reliable heralds of the grace of God found in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Right? I, I'm not going to budge on the law of God. The Bible says what the Bible says. But guess what? You're sinners and you're going to break God's law. And there is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. If you will repent of your sin, God is faithful to forgive. 
So we will be unwavering on the law of God, but we will also be unwavering on the grace of God. A manager, a faithful manager, does not bend the knee to cultural whims in order to be more popular or to build their ministry. Right? Again, God's word says what it says. It doesn't matter if that is popular or not. It doesn't matter if that leads to persecution or not. A faithful manager will be unwavering in that. And a faithful manager refuses to water down the cross of Christ to make it more palatable. Right? Your sin and my sin cost the Son of God his life. Your sin and my sin required God to step out of glory, take on flesh, to be hungry and thirsty and tired and miserable from time to time, to, to be persecuted, to be beaten and spit upon and murdered so that we could have relationship with the Father. Like we're not going to shy away from that either. Like the, the cross of Christ is a gruesome, gruesome thing. It's a hard thing to hear. Many people don't want to understand that about themselves. But a faithful, a faithful manager is going to refuse to water that down for, to make anybody else comfortable. Now notice... Exactly none of that mentions anything about the effectiveness of their ministry. Right? Quantitative growth in a church doesn't mean that the manager is faithful. Monetary growth in the church doesn't mean that the manager is faithful. Right? Both of these things are what we usually use to judge how well a pastor is doing. That's typically what, when two pastors are talking, how's your church going? That's the question they're asking. Right? How many people do you have and are y'all making budget? That's what they want to know. Right? Are your numbers up? Is your giving up? This is not a good way to measure faithfulness in ministry. Most of the most famous, well-known churches, and I do mean to put that in quotation marks and will continue to put that in quotation marks, most of these churches in our culture are not exactly well-known for their faithfulness to God's Word. You can grow a congregation by making them promises that God never makes. Right? If you just have enough faith, if you will just do enough things, then God will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. You, you, you preach that enough, and you can have 50,000 people sitting in a stadium cheering you on and buying all your books. You can grow a congregation by removing the sting and confrontation of sin. God loves you just as you are, right? You sang the song, just as I am, right? Just as you are. You don't have to change a single thing about you. You don't have to repent. You don't have to change. You don't have to live for anyone other than yourself. You can have whatever kind of relationship you want with whoever you want. You can lie. You can cheat. You can steal. You can destroy your marriage. You can step on whoever you want to on your way up the corporate ladder. God doesn't care about any of that. He just wants you to know Him and love Him because He loves you. you can, I'd pack this place in a, in a week if I started preaching that message. The, the quantitative growth of this place or the monetary growth of this place is not a, a sign of my faithfulness. You can grow a congregation by watering down the gospel to make it more palatable. It happens all the time. 
when the winds of the culture change and it makes the stuff that we're proclaiming hard and it no longer gets to the place like we used to be a place where you could preach pretty much whatever you wanted and everybody showed up because that was the cultural thing to do that's no longer the cultural thing to do right just the fact that i've said some of the things that i've said from this means that i could never run for for political office because they're going to dig this up and they're going to say did you hear what he said there's no chance that i could ever run for political office i don't care i'm not looking for running for political office I'm not looking for the approval of our culture. I am meant to be faithful, and I will strive to be faithful. You can get people to give by telling, hey, if you will give, God will give you tenfold what you have given. And if he doesn't, it's because you just didn't have enough faith. It's convenient. It's really convenient that if you give and he blesses, it's because you did enough. And if you didn't, it's because you didn't do enough. It has nothing to do with their faithfulness to the word of God. That's not faithfulness. That's often what we use to judge pastors for their faithfulness. And some of that is probably what Paul was being judged on by the Corinthians. Right? I mean, he, he, he admits, I didn't come with a wealth of knowledge. I didn't come with eloquent speech. And so because of that, that might be the reason why some of these people are like, well, I like Apollos better. He's a really good speaker. Right? Paul can be a bit brash sometimes. And so I I like Peter better. Paul says, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about being judged by you. He says in verses 3 to 5, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart and then praise will come to each one from God. Paul does not suffer from what we call fear of man. Fear of man will often change how we do things. It's often the reason why we don't evangelize the way that we're called to. It's often the reason why we don't call people out the way that we're called to. We're afraid of how they're going to handle that. And then he says here, he's not worried about what the Corinthian church thinks of him. Right? He's working and he's serving an audience of one. And that's it. Working to be faithful to the Lord. He says he doesn't even care about his own judgment. I don't even care what I think about me. Right? He, doesn't, he says he doesn't know any, of anything that will be held against him, but that doesn't justify him. Just the fact that he's not aware of how he has sinned or how he has, has failed in some way, shape, or form. He's like, it doesn't even matter how I think about me. It only matters what God thinks of me because we can be deceived. Right? We can think, hey, everything's fine. I'm doing everything right. And that might not be true. But Paul says here that God sees to the, the hidden depths of our soul. He sees every errant thought that you have ever thunk. He sees it all. He knows everything that we have ever done. Whether we've done it in the plain light of day or in the darkness of night, God knows it all. And he says he will judge based on what he knows. So he tells him, don't don't judge prematurely. You don't know the half of it. If you were even to judge me based on my failures, you don't know it by half. He says, God will take care of that. He will judge whether I have been faithful or not. 
So he doesn't care what the Corinthian church thinks of him. It's the Lord who will judge Paul. It's the Lord who is, is going to judge the faithfulness of all the managers. This is the only judgment that's legitimate because, as I said, only the Lord can judge the heart behind the service and the management. Just because I do the things that I need to do to look good in front of this church doesn't mean that my heart is right. right? If I'm here solely to get a paycheck, I'm going to do what's, what I need to do. Right? There's a certain level of expectation that was clear when I signed the paper to, to come be a, the pastor of this church. Right? Here's what we expect of you. Or, or do you accept that, those roles? Sure do. So I know, what, I know what's expected, but that doesn't mean that my heart's right. It doesn't mean that I love you. I do. But that, doesn't mean, that, that just means that I know what to do to keep my job. God's going to judge my heart, though. He's going to know how I really feel about you. He's going to know how I really feel about serving you. He's going to know how I have truly been faithful to his word and to his kingdom and to the things that he has called me to do. And so you can judge me all you like. I don't suffer from fear of man either. Maybe a little too far in that direction, actually. But I will be judged by one. And you aren't any of it. <laughs> so I will live to serve and to try to be justified and faithfully serve God in, in this place. As I try to serve and love you well. And those who are found to be faithful, Paul says, they're going to find praise and reward from God. Those who are found unfaithful, James 3.1 says that those who teach will be held to a stricter judgment. So this is, this is how Paul says you should think of the managers. You should think of your pastors, your elders, your overseers. He says stop elevating people for no reason. Right? We're supposed to be unified and these people are meant to serve. After this, Paul, he turns his attention away from the managers and focuses on the Corinthian church. And so we see a rebuke here in verses 6 to 12. It's a harsh rebuke from Paul regarding their judgments. He says there, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you would be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if it hadn't been received? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Paul is calling them out for the arrogance of choosing and elevating one person above another. In verse 7, he asks three rhetorical questions. Who makes you so superior? Like, who, who are you to get to judge that that person is better than that person? Like, where do you get off elevating yourself to be able to make that judgment? 
The second rhetorical question he asks is, what, did, what do you have that you didn't receive? Like, if, if your response to that question is, who makes you so superior? And your thought is, well, I'm smarter than they are. I'm taller than they are. I'm a better basketball player than they are. I can sing better than they can. I can speak better than they can. If that is all true, where did you get the ability to do that? God gave that to you. Every gift that you have. God made that possible for you. He says, why do you boast as though you didn't receive what you've received? Everything you have has been given to you as a gracious gift from a loving God, and it is not meant so that you can elevate yourself above someone else or elevate someone else in your own mind above someone else. Paul says here, there's this, there's this weird list here, and if you're, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, it seems confusing, right? where he goes through here and he says, uh, you are already full, you are already rich, you have begun to reign as kings without us. And what he's talking about is there's this time coming, there's a day coming when we will reign like kings. The people of God will no longer have to face any of the difficulties of this life. Christ will return, everything will be made new, there will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more mourning, no more grief, and we will live as kings because we are co-heirs with Christ. That day is coming. Paul says, though, you guys are living like that's already here. He said, you're already full, you're already rich, you have already begun to reign as kings without us, And he says, I wish you did reign because that would mean we could come too. These people aren't actually reigning. These people aren't in charge in Corinth. But they're living like they are. Do you know why? Because they're living so much like the world that they're not experiencing the persecution that Paul and the apostles are experiencing. They look just like the culture. And guess what? The culture loves its own. If you do the same things that the culture does, they will not ever badmouth you. They will never persecute you. They will never come after you for anything. It's when you stand out from the world that you begin to experience these things. Paul says, we, meaning the apostles, are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. You think a lot of yourself. He says, we are weak, but you're strong. Even though you are dividing the church, you think that you are solid in all of this. He says, you're distinguished, but we are dishonored up to the present hour. He says, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly clothed, we're roughly treated, we're homeless. We labor with working with our own hands. And then he goes through this list of how we're supposed to act when these things come for us. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. And even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage, because this is what happens when you are living for the kingdom of God. The world will press back against you. The world will persecute you. You will suffer something for the cause of Christ if you live that way. And he's saying here, you're not experiencing any of that because you're not living like that. You're living like the world. And it makes me wonder, as uh, the church in America, how much are we experiencing this because we don't look like the world? Or do we look like the world? 
Do you experience pushback on your faith? Do you get people to say, hey, I don't believe that and you're stupid for believing that? Has your pursuit of the kingdom of God ever led to losing a promotion? Has it ever led to losing a relationship? Has there ever been anything bad that's ever happened to you because of your pursuit of the kingdom of God? If the answer is no, and it's regularly no, I would be willing to bet that it's because you're not pursuing the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear that for those who are actively pursuing him and his kingdom, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be suffering. He says, you know, basically, like if you have, if you're following a, a crucified Messiah, you really shouldn't think that every single day is going to be you skipping through the roses and everything being fine. Everything ended up going your way. He says, you shouldn't be, Paul's here saying, you shouldn't be wise in your own eyes. You shouldn't think you are strong when you're actually weak. And if you're never being dishonored, if you're never experiencing hunger and thirst, if you've never been poorly clothed or roughly treated because of the way the world sees you, it's because you're looking a lot like them. And they typically won't eat their own. We need to look at our life and see how are we living it. Is there no pushback at all from the world? It's probably because we're having very little impact for the kingdom of God. All right, right now, our culture is basically like, if you will shut up and sit there quietly, we'll leave you alone. We will not come after you. We will not make a spectacle out of you. I want you to just take your Jesus, sit over there and be quiet. And as long as you do that, everything will be fine. You can talk about God all you want. That's fine. Just don't talk about Jesus. Right? You can live your life however you want. Just don't tell me how to live mine. As long as you do that, it will be fine. It's when we start not doing that that we get pushed back. It's when we start not doing that that we start finding that people don't like the message of the gospel. They don't like the message of the cross. They don't like being told, hey, that's sinful and you can't do that or else it's going to put you at odds with a holy and righteous God. When we start saying that out loud and telling the people that we love and care for that God has placed sovereignly around us, it's when things start to go bad. These people, they're not experiencing any of that. And Paul says it's because you look like them. Too much like the world. And then finally, Paul essentially says, I'm coming to see you. How do you want this to go? Right? This is... Literally, like, I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but just wait till your father gets home. This is essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm not, he said, I don't, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you have many countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. I really like that line. What, he's, he's essentially saying, what, what you got? You're talking a big game right now. Let's see, let's see if you can back up that talk. He's gonna, I'm going to come and see what kind of power you have behind these words that you're saying. He says, for 
the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? This is your choice. It's your call. This is going to go however you want it to go. He says, I, I don't want to shame you. It's not, that's not the point of this. The point is repentance. The point is to turn, to go back. Right? That's, that's the, all loving discipline is meant for that purpose. To point back to Christ. To point back to obedience in Christ. He says, I don't, I'm not doing this to shame you. I love you. I, you're my dear children. So you're going to have a hundred people that might come through that church and they may teach you about the things of God, but I am your spiritual father. I'm the one that started the whole thing with you. And because of that, I love you dearly. I don't want to discipline you. I don't want to come across harshly, but it's up to you. You get to decide what my visit looks like. He says, I'm going to send Timothy on ahead. He knows all the things that I know. I love him dearly. He is faithful He's a faithful manager. And he's going to show up and he's going to talk to you more about the things of God until I can get there. And then the question is, should I come to you with a rod, with discipline, right? There's that authority that he does have, authority given to him by God as an apostle. Or should I come in love and a spirit of gentleness? Right? The, the acknowledgement, hey, this didn't go great, but you have repented and that's over. Right, you are forgiven, and that is behind you now. Or are you going to be obstinate in it? Are you going to stand firm in your sin? Are you going to buck up? Are you going to try to back up all that talk? We're going to find out if you can. Now, I, don't, I, I wouldn't mess with the Apostle Paul. I mean, a dude that gets hit with rocks, they thought he was dead, he passes out, they drag him out of the city, and he gets up after he wakes up, dusts himself off, and goes back into the city. Mm, I'm probably not going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Apostle Paul. But even beyond that, it's not a physical threat that we're concerned with here. This is someone who's been given authority by God to speak truth into their life. He says, do you want that truth to be disciplinary, or do you want it to be love? He wants it to be love. Just like every single parent, every single good parent wants, they don't want to discipline their child. If they love their child, they will. They don't want to. They want them to be obedient. They want them to follow the things of the Lord. But if they won't, every loving parent will come with discipline in order to point back to the things that truly matter. And again, it's not about what our children think of us. It's about what our children think of God. And that's where they, we, we want them to focus. And that's where Paul wants their focus to be. Stop, stop acting like the world. Start directing your eyes not to these teachers, these men who God has appointed to serve you and to, to faithfully manage the church, but look to God. That's the whole purpose. That's everybody that they're pointing, everything that they're pointing to is Christ. So keep our eyes there. How are we doing with that here today? Are the things of the world distracting, distracting us and pulling us away from the kingdom of God? Is there certain things that you wish that I would do better and because of that you have a hard time hearing me? Like, he's not like the last pastor that I had. 
right? He, he doesn't call me every single week. He doesn't visit me every single week. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. I wish he told more stories when he preaches. I wish he was more animated. And because he's none of those things, then he's not as good as this pastor. And if you like him, that means I'm better than you. Is there any heart in here like that today? It's worth a conversation if it is. But I'm here to faithfully serve you. I'm here to manage this church to the best of my ability so that at the end of my life, I can present the work that I have done here to, to the Lord and say, I did the best that I could with what I had. And I do want you to know that I love you. I'm so grateful to be your pastor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to be a servant and a manager of Oak Grove Baptist Church. I pray that you would find that I have been faithful here. That lives have changed, that hearts have changed because of the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that the blessing of that would go out every single week as we take what we have been taught, what we have learned, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. When we go out these doors, I pray that we would be people who pour that out everywhere we go with the acknowledgement, Lord, that if we do that, we are going to suffer. We're going to experience persecution. We're going to experience hardship. And my desire is that you would bolster up our heart. You would give us the strength to endure it. And that we would be willing to do whatever is necessary so that people can hear the beautiful truth of the gospel. Lord, we will all be judged based on what we have done in your name for your kingdom. And that will warrant us rewards in heaven or it will cost us. And I don't know what it's going to cost us, Lord, and I, but I don't want to learn. I want every single person in this place to be faithful to you in all that we think, say, and do. I want people to be glad that they know someone from Oak Grove Baptist Church. And I want your spirit to pour out here, Lord, that we see lives change, we see people come to faith, we see spiritual growth, we're no longer like the world. We can't do any of that without you. So I, I put it at your feet. Pray that you will change us all. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. We invite you to stand and join us for our last hymn, which is number 335, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. <laughs>
Alrighty, church. Just a reminder, we are getting ready to go eat. And I have a, a sinking feeling that we're going to do it really, really well. And so um, I wanted to pray for us before we uh, go over there. I'll pray for the food. Uh, but I wanted to leave us with this benediction from Matthew 16, 24 to 27. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. And I want the reward for you to be immense because of the work that you have done for God's kingdom. I love you guys. So let me pray for our food, and then we can go over there and enjoy a time of fellowship with one another. Father, thank you so much for the food that we are getting ready to eat. And Lord, I thank you even more for the time of fellowship that we get to enjoy, get to enjoy uh, with one another. And I pray that um, with the nourishment that we're given, that we would serve you well, uh, and that you would continue to grow our relationships in this church, that we will be known for how much we love you and how much we love one another. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.